welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Since 2017, six chimeric antigen receptor T-cell, or CAR-T, products have received FDA approval for the treatment of various refractory or resistant hematologic cancers, such as B-cell acute lymphocytic leukemia, non-Hodgkin lymphomas, and multiple myeloma. While acute and short-term toxicities of CAR-T therapy are well-known, long-term effects are less so. As more and more patients survive after CAR-T therapy, the recognition, awareness, and management of late toxicity will become equally important. Here to help us when the CAR-T is over is Dr. Alejandro Del Rio Verdesco, a pharmacist at Mayo Clinic Health System in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Evans is the first agent in the market in 2017. CAR-T agents have garnered significant attention due to their novel mechanism of action and curative potential in patients with hematological cancers that have previously failed multiple therapies. Today, over 10,000 patients have undergone CAR-T therapy, with many of those patients surviving for over five years. However, with their survival also come reports of delayed toxicities that occur well past the better characterized short-term complications of CAR-T. So, whether you practice within or outside a cancer center, knowledge of the nature, incidence, and management of these late toxicities will, will become increasingly important to your practice as more CAR-T agents get approved and more patients continue to survive for longer after receiving this new type of immunotherapy. So today, we will be defining the different short-term and long-term toxicities of CAR-T therapy. We'll be describing current evidence for existing management strategies for late-term CAR-T toxicities. And finally, we'll identify evidence and reports of emerging long-term CAR-T toxicities. Let us start by defining what a chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR, is. In broad term, CAR-T is like taking your own immune diesel, your troop soldiers, into a specialized boot camp where they will be outfitted with advanced equipment that will allow them to find cancer cells and kill them with more precision and efficiency. In this analogy, our advanced equipment is the CAR, which is essentially the fusion of the heavy and light variable binding regions of an antibody with the signaling regions of a T cell, which normally requires co-stimulation by an antigen presenting cell in order to exert its function. The synthetic protein resulting from combining these parts allow cars to have the best of both worlds, an external domain with strong and specific binding abilities, and an internal domain that co-stimulates itself to exert key T-cell functions independently, independently from antigen-presenting cell co-stimulation, such as cytokine release, cytolysis, and maintaining proper T-cell proliferation. Presently, CAR-T is an autologous process only, meaning that a patient's own white blood cells are extracted via leukapheresis. These cells are then sent to a CAR-T manufacturing lab where the T cells are isolated and activated to grow exponentially. 
Then the synthetic cars are introduced into the patient cell with the use of viral vectors such as an antivirus or retrovirus. We would now call these CAR T cells since the CAR has been fully incorporated into the T cell itself. Afterwards, the multiplication of these CARs would continue while patients undergo lymphodepleting chemotherapy in order to make room for the new CAR T cells, which are then infused five days later. Overall, this entire process takes about three to four weeks depending on the CAR T manufacturer. So once infused into a patient, CAR T cells recognize an antigen specific to a tumor cell, then bind to it using the antibody portion of the extracellular domain. At this point, the CAR T cell activates and starts secreting cytokines, interleukins, and perforating granules, which then create pores that lead to the tumor cells death. In order to be safe and minimize toxicities, CAR T cells are engineered to target antigens that are specific to tumor cells as possible. To date, CAR-T products have two main targets. CD19, which is highly expressed and conserved on B-cell malignancies, such as ALL and CLL, as well as multiple subtypes of non-Hodgkin lymphomas, such as mantle cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. The other, more recent target is the B-cell maturation antigen, or BCMA, which unlike CD19, is only expressed on differentiated plasma cells, and is present in most multiple myeloma cell lines, making it an ideal target for CAR T therapy. Now, while both targets are highly specific to tumor cells, just like with most other chemotherapies, there are also some healthy cells that present these antigens. So for example, when this CD19 CAR T attacks a CD19 presenting tumor cell, we'd call that an on-target on-tumor effect. But when that same CAR T attacks CD19 expressing naive B cells or more differentiated memory B cells, we would refer to this as an on-target off-tumor effect. The same idea can be applied, applied to BCMA therapies in which the on-target off-tumor effect would result in the death of antibody-producing plasma cells. It is important to keep this on-target of tumor effect concept in mind, as it's often these effects that can lead to some of the toxicities that we will be discussing further today. And here for your reference is a table containing all six of the FDA-approved CAR-T agents, as well as their landmark trials and years in which they were approved. For this presentation, most of the data and information available come from the first four agents, which target CD19, since the two BCMA targeting agents are still very recent, so there's not that many trials for them yet. Also, it's important to point out that to date, all of these agents are currently indicated for the treatment of refractory or relapsed malignancies, making it more challenging to parse out which treatment modality could have potentially contributed to certain kinds of toxicities. Speaking of which, CAR-T has many well-documented toxicities, such as the immunosuppression resulting from lymphodepleting therapy, as well as the inflammatory syndromes of CRS and ICANS. These are known to occur within the first 30 days after CAR-T infusion, and as such, will characterize them as short-term toxicities. Any events that manifest after these initial 30 days will be termed as long-term or late toxicities for the purposes of this presentation. These late toxicities include persistent cytopenias, late infections, low immunoglobulin G levels, and other late toxicities, which will be discussed in much more detail later in this presentation. 
So cytokine release syndrome or CRS is the most common and best characterized toxicity of CAR-T to date. CRS incidence varies between specific CAR-T agents, but it's typically observed in half or more patients receiving CAR-T. CRS occurs as a consequence of CAR T cells expanding in the body, releasing different inflammatory cytokines, with interleukin 6 being the most abundant. This increase of cytokines initially manifests with some broad symptoms such as fever and muscle pain, followed by more severe manifestations such as low oxygen and hypotension, which can then lead to shock and death if they're not managed promptly. CRS onset can be variable typically occurs within the first week after CAR-T infusion. And the specific treatment strategy for CRS will vary depending on the CAR-T agent used, as well as the severity of the symptoms, but it typically involves the use of steroids, and in more severe cases, tocilizumab, which is an interleukin-6 inhibitor. Now, ICANS, or immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome, is not as well as understood as CRS, but is hypothesized to manifest due to the systemic inflammation that occurs with CAR-T expansion, leading to a disruption of the blood-brain barrier, which then allow the CAR-T cells inside, triggering a series of inflammatory processes across the central nervous system. This is consistent with the fact that ICANS is frequently observed to occur shortly after CRS, although it can also sometimes occur alongside it. ICANS is also a lot more variable, both in terms of its incidence and the symptoms that can occur as a result. These can vary all the way from fatigue, headaches, difficulty speaking or writing, and can sometimes develop into more serious manifestations such as brain swelling and seizures. ICANS management is also severity and product dependent, although steroids will typically be employed earlier in most treatment algorithms, and prophylactic antiepileptics such as Keppra can also be considered. Here, we can see in more detail the variability of CRS and ICANS incidence between the different CAR-T products. And in the case of TISA cell, there's even a marked incidence difference depending on the condition being treated with both short-term syndromes occurring more frequently in ALL than in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Also notable is that severe-grade CRS and ICANS have been observed less in newer CAR-T products, such as lisocell and the BCMA targeting agents. So due to the frequency of these short-term toxicities, most cancer cells, most cancer centers administering a CAR-T agent will monitor patients frequently during the first month and will even require patients to be housed within two hours of the center in order to be able to intervene effectively in the event that CRS or ICANS were to occur. However, once a patient is cleared to go home by a cancer center, monitoring and management of any toxicities and complications from CAR-T will typically become the responsibility of the patient's local hematologist as well as their primary care provider. And this is the reason why it's important to have an increased awareness and knowledge of these late toxicities. Let us now use our knowledge of the previous slides to help us answer the following patient case. Here, we have a 63-year-old female patient who has received AxiCell infusion for the treatment of DLBCL, which had reemerged after being treated with both RCHOP chemotherapy and stem cell transplant. It's now been four months since MB got the CAR-T infusion, and she has come up to her PCP for a checkup. Which of the following would be a long-term toxicity that her provider should be aware of and monitoring for? A, encephalopathy and cerebral edema. B, low levels of neutrophils and IgG. 
C, hypertension and low oxygenation levels, or D, development of flu-like fever and myalgia. So please take a moment to answer this in polleverywhere.com or in the app. All right, so we're getting some results in. And yeah, I definitely agree with the majority of you in that the correct answer here would be B. So encephalopathy and cerebral edema are side effects of ICANS, whereas the C and D would be the uh, side effects of CRS, making low levels of neutrophils and IgG the correct answer, since this would be the only side effects that would be more consistent with long-term toxicities. So moving into the focus of our presentation, there are some aspects of long-term toxicities that should be addressed upfront. Most of these toxicities do not have a lot of trials or data behind them to date. And as such, most of the information that we'll be discussing in this presentation come from existing practices, expert opinion recommendations, or extrapolation of data from similar treatment modalities, such as hematopoietic stem cell transplant. We should also keep in mind that these toxicities do not occur in a vacuum. And there are many factors that can affect their incidence and severity such as what was the primary malignancy of the patient? How many previous lines of treatment did they undergo? And what was the target of the CAR-T therapy? Even patient-specific factors such as their age and disease burden can all influence observe these long-term effects. And in some cases, they could potentially be underlying causes or confounding factors themselves. So until we have more data and studies, we must be careful before attributing a single cause to any of the toxicities that are about to be discussed. The first class of side effects that we'll be describing are hematological disturbances such as anemia, leukopenia, and thrombocytopenia. The mechanism behind why these occur after CAR-T administration is still unclear to date, but given that they all occur with all CAR-T agents, it seems likely that this would be a class effect of CAR-T rather than still being attributable to the uh, leukopenia that happens due to the lymphodepleting therapy, which typically would have resolved within a few weeks after CAR-T infusion. There has also been several identified risk factors, such as the intensity of the lymphodepleting therapy and the disease that's being targeted. Case in point, we can see in this table that cytopenias tend to be observed more frequently in patients being treated for ALL than in those being treated for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, even though the same agent here, T-cell, was used to treat both the non-Hodgkin lymphoma patients and the ALL patients in the Juliet and Eliana trials, respectively. In terms of management, we primarily rely on supportive treatment, first making sure to assess and correct any existing nutritional deficiencies in the patient, then moving to replace the specific deficiency with the corresponding blood product. For anemias, our main goal would be to maintain a hemoglobin level above seven grams per deciliter, but depending on the symptoms and age of the patient, a threshold of eight could also be considered. Regarding growth-stimulating factors, such as epoietine alpha, filgrastim, or romiplostim, they could also be considered, but there's currently little to no data supporting their use in CAR-T patients. I would suggest referring to your institution's particular protocols regarding the use of these agents in the setting of other malignancies or post-stem cell transplant patients. There was one singular case that reported the successful use of a patient's own frozen stem cells that were collected prior to CAR-T therapy in order to treat persistent low levels of all hematological cell lines. 
Of course, we'd want to see more studied cases and more data before this approach can be endorsed. Late infection is a toxicity that is multifactorial in nature, with the depletion of either neutrophils, lymphocytes, or immunoglobulins all being potential underlying causes behind patients experiencing infections several months after receiving CAR T therapy. Just as with cytopenias, high CAR T doses and patients experiencing more severe CRS were observed to be at increased risk for severe infections. As we can see from the incidences reported in each agent's landmark trials, around a fifth of patients in each trial developed infections that were severe enough that require prompt intervention. Do note that once again, with all ALL patients, or with all ALL patients, these infections tended to occur much earlier compared to patients with multiple myeloma or diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And of course, follow-up strategies were different in each trial, so it's likely that this also played a role in the observed differences. While landmark trials didn't report on what type of microorganism caused these late infections, several independent studies have reported these incidences more frequently. As we can see from the bolded percentages, majority of infections in lymphoma patients were observed to be caused by bacteria, while viral infections were observed more frequently in ALL patients. Another interesting data point that was reported in most of these independent trials was the incidence of low immunoglobulins before and after CAR T infusion. So while it's clear that hypogammaglobulinemia was already present in a proportion of patients prior to CAR T administration, these proportions invariably increased after CAR T was administered in every single trial that reported both pre and post IgG levels. And you might be wondering a little bit of why these studies were evaluating IgG levels in the first place. This would be because hypogammaglobulinemia is to date the most frequently and consistently observed late CAR T toxicity. And this makes sense if we remember that on target off tumor effect that I mentioned earlier. By destroying these otherwise healthy antibody producing cells, the number of immunoglobulins, particularly IgG, would decrease since there would be less cells that generate them. It should be noted that the actual impact of gamma globulinemia in CAR T patients is still mostly unknown because there is not a perfect correlation between antibody levels and persistent humoral immunity in patients. The main treatment modality here would be monthly administrations of intravenous immunoglobulin G or IVIG which would typically be started when IgG levels fall below 400 milligrams per deciliter and would be continued until these levels are consistently above 500 milligrams per deciliter for three consecutive months. However, levels of IgG should not be the only consideration given the imperfect correlation that I mentioned earlier. And as such, all three risk factors listed here may be more relevant when deciding whether to administer IVIG or not, especially the history of recurrent infections, since this would be considered secondary prophylaxis, which is when we would typically want to consider IVIG administration. In general, this has been because these patient populations have been observed to be more at risk for developing severe infections when IgG levels are noted to be decreased. When it comes to monitoring for late infections, it is important to establish baseline levels of lymphocytes, immunoglobulins, and cytomegalovirus PCR on patients prior to undergoing CAR-T, as all three of these should be monitored frequently within the first year post-CAR-T administration. 
The table below details how frequently we should obtain specific pathogen antibodies in order to ensure that these patients still have effective immunoprotection for these infectious agents. Regarding vaccinations, live attenuated vaccines are contraindicated in patients for at least two years after CAR-T infusion, one year post any immunosuppressive therapy, and at least eight months after receiving any type of blood product in order to prevent reactivation of the attenuated virus. For inactivated vaccines, COVID and flu vaccines should be administered as soon as three months after CAR-T administration, with the rest of the vaccines listed here to be started six months after. Importantly, this vaccination series applies to patients who have either not undergone stem cell transplant, or if they have, in patients that have already completed that modality's particular vaccination series first. Antimicrobial prophylaxis should be considered in patients that have decreased white blood cell counts. Absolute neutrophil count, or ANC in particular, would guide us to use broad-spectrum antibiotics such as levofloxacin as bacterial prophylaxis in patients whose ANC level fall below 500 cells per microliter. Antifungal prophylaxis in the long-term setting has been recommended to require not just low ANC levels, but also at least two risk factors that are noted here. In most malignancies, fluconazole treatment should be sufficient but as has been noted previously, patients with ALL have historically presented with more severe disease and levels of neutropenia. So in this particular malignancy, an echinocandine such as caspofungin would be preferred. Now for both pneumocystis gyrobechi pneumonia and antiviral prophylaxis, CD4 levels rather than ANC would be the preferred marker to guide discontinuation of prophylaxis. For PGP, our treatment of choice would be single-strand Bactrim until CD4 levels are above 200 cells per microliter. If Bactrim is found to be intolerable, intolerable or contraindicated in a patient, inhaled pentamidine or oral atovaquone or dapson could be considered as alternatives. And for antiviral prophylaxis, our main target here or main agent would be acyclovir twice daily. All right, so revisiting our earlier patient case, MB's primary provider is now reviewing her pertinent medical and vaccination history, as well as CVC and IgG titers that were drawn yesterday. She has a history of two previous community acquired pneumonia infections, as well as one UTA case, all which have occurred within the last three months. Her last flu shot was administered in 2013, and a Shingris vaccine has not been recorded in this patient. Hemoglobin is 12.12.2, platelets are 353, ANC is 2,700, and IgG levels are 237. And as a reminder, this patient received CAR-T therapy four months ago. So based on MB's records and results, what would be your management plan? A, starting influenza and shingles vaccine, and also starting levofloxacin 500 milligrams PO daily. B, starting influenza and shingles vaccine and starting IVIG 400 milligrams per kilogram monthly. Or C, the influenza series only and starting IVIG 400 milligrams per kilogram monthly. And lastly, shingles vaccine only, starting levofloxacin 500 milligrams PO daily. So I can see a little bit more variety of responses as well as a little bit of a swing. But yes, I would agree once again with the majority here. Uh, 
option A, starting the, or, well, let me put it this way. So uh, both options A, B, and D would be incorrect because all of them would recommend starting the shingles vaccine. And let's remember that the indication to start shingles vaccine and most other vaccines is after six months of CAR-T uh, therapy. And this patient has only received CAR-T therapy four months prior. Um, additionally, options B and D, or sorry, options A and D also recommend starting levofloxacin 500 milligrams PO daily as prophylaxis. But the A and C levels here are 2,700, which is well above the threshold that's recommended. And yeah, basically these options also do not recommend starting IBIG, which because this patient not only has a level of IBIG below 400 cells per microliter, but she has had recurrent infections. That would be the reason why we would want to start both the Influenza vaccine only and IBIG levels, uh, IBIG infusion monthly. The late toxicities that we will be covering in this section, there is significantly less data available for them to date. Most landmark trials from CAR-T products didn't report on these toxicities. So the main sources available come from case reports and one retrospective study conducted by Cordero and colleagues at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. This study followed 86 patients that survived after receiving CAR-T for at least a year. And in this table, we have an overview of the number of patients that were observed to have developed immune-related adverse reactions, second malignancies, late neurotoxicities, and psychiatric events. Notably, the median of all of these toxicities we're past a year post-CAR-T infusion, which is what makes this study stand out despite lacking a control and having a small sample size. In respect to the immune-related reactions, the Cordero study identified seven different patients that developed toxicities at different times. Additionally, a case series report conducted by Kambapati and colleagues described three patients that developed immune-related toxicities. Some notable findings include the fact that almost each patient developed different types of immune reactions affecting different systems ranging from pulmonary reactions, GI toxicities, and skin reactions. Another interesting finding is that pretty much all patients were identified to be diagnosed with chronic types of oncologies rather than a more aggressive ALL. Most of these patients were also treated with four or more lines of therapy, which could make us consider some of these previous therapy to perhaps playing a role in the development of these effects. But of course, given the small number of patients described, it wouldn't be prudent to draw any concrete inferences yet. All the same, it's important to be aware that these have been observed to occur in order to keep an eye out for them and hopefully characterize them better in the future. Regarding secondary malignancies, only one occurrence of myelodysplastic syndrome was reported in the landmark SUMA-1 trial for Axicel. In the Cordero study, 13 patients were observed to develop secondary malignancies, all detected at least six months or more after CAR-T therapy. Unlike with the immune-related toxicities, these secondary malignancies were observed on both ALL, CLL, and non-Hodgkin lymphoma patients. The most commonly observed type of malignancies were non-melanoma skin cancer, followed by myelodysplastic syndromes. Once again, similar caution should be taken when interpreting this data, since over half of these patients had undergone stem cell transplant before CAR-T treatment, 
And just like with the immune adverse effects, every single patient had already undergone several previous lines of chemotherapy. And additionally, three patients were identified to already have pre-existing cytogenetic abnormalities before CAR-T was administered. So we can't yet say for certain whether CAR-T is contributing to the development of these secondary cancers or by how much. However, regardless of the cause, we've seen that these malignancies can occur. So having some monitoring strategies in place would be beneficial to our patients. Currently, there is no official guidance for the management of secondary malignancies in the CAR-T uh, population. But how, given the similarities of CAR-T treatment with stem cell transplant, I present here some recommendations based on the existing stem cell transplant guidelines. Just please note that while this can be useful, it's also possible that not every recommendation here would apply perfectly to CAR-T patients. Some of the risk factors that have been observed in stem cell recipients include prior exposure to radiation therapy, etoposide, or alkylating agents. So annual screening is recommended for skin, breast, thyroid, cervix, or oral cavity malignancies with all other types of cancers to be screened according to their respective general population guidelines. Educating patients about the risk of secondary malignancies, as well as how to screen for them annually, might also be beneficial. Patients should also try limiting exposure to tobacco, as this is a well-documented contributor of malignancies in general, whereas sunlight and UV light are risk factors for skin cancer, which, as previously noted, has been the most observed CAR T malignancy to date. Now, when it comes to neurologic toxicities, only one case was reported in the SUMA-1 trial of a patient that developed persistent memory impairment after CAR-T administration. In the Cordero study, nine patients developed various neurologic events between two to 16 months post-CAR-T administration. But unlike all the other types of reported toxicities, there were no clear commonalities or risk factors identified in these patients. This is likely in part because the study didn't report on past medical conditions such as hypertension or diabetes in these patients, which we know are well-known risk factors for developing strokes. In contrast, every one of the eight patients that reported psychiatric findings, whether these were pre-existing or new, had significant risk factors identified, including substance use disorder or reporting interpersonal difficulties with their close relations. So one last toxicity that I would like to address that isn't related to the Cordero study is instead about the most recently approved CAR-T agent, Siltacel. Data coming from the CAR-T2-1 trial identified that about 6% of patients in this study developed neurological movement disorders that were consistent with Parkinsonism within a median time of 42 days after CAR-T infusion. Out of these six patients, Three have been reported to have passed away since, with one of them dying due to worsening neurotoxicity. Of the three surviving patients, two had ongoing Parkinsonism symptoms up to the point of the last updated report, and one single patient's Parkinsonism has since resolved. Unfortunately, the report has not provided details of when, how, or what specific management strategies were utilized in this patient. The study did mention that some supportive measures, including the low dose uh, of cinnamon, were attempted to be used in at least one patient, but they only stated that this use did not lead to symptom resolution. Despite the lack of details in the trial, reports of this Parkinsonism effect is significant, as it may point towards a side effect that may be unique to a specific CAR-T agent, 
rather than a class effect manifestation. Still, just like all the other toxicities reported in this section, the small sample should give us pause before making more definitive conclusions at this point in time. So for the last question of this presentation, I would like to check with you which of the following statements regarding the late toxicities reported in the Cordero study are correct or is correct because there's only one answer, right answer. The toxicities, option A would be the toxicities described in the study have been proven to be caused directly by CAR T administration. B, the data reported about these toxicities has no clinical value because it lacks a control group. C, late toxicities observed to occur months after CAR T cannot be inferred to occur directly due to CAR T administration. Or D, the data reported about these toxicities should be used as a framework for the clinical treatment of these toxicities. I am seeing more of a split here. Um, here, I actually would point out that C is the correct answer. The reason why is because this is the only statement that is acknowledging that no clear or concrete inferences should be made uh, when it comes to a single observational trial with a low sample size. Whereas every other single option is basically making concrete inferences, either saying that it's proven to cause, you know, that there's a causation, a causation uh, link between the, the two events or whether we should for sure use this data as concrete evidence. And those are inferences that shouldn't be made at this point in time. Option B would be incorrect because it would be implying that this study has no clinical application whatsoever, which is also untrue as there are some things that we can glean from it, just not making any concrete statements at this time. So as we reach the end of this presentation, it's probably become very apparent that while we have gotten valuable data and information that simply did not exist a couple of years ago, there is still much that we do not know about the late toxicities that we've covered here today and that they're listed here. I've also noticed that most of the landmark trials for these agents did not report on the race and ethnicity of the patients treated, with the SILTA cell trial being the only exception. This points towards an area of need in the future trials as these will benefit from obtaining more buried patient samples that better represent the populations they're aiming to treat. Also, my hope is that by presenting this information today, we can increase the awareness of these toxicities so that they can be identified earlier and more frequently, which in turn would help us manage them more effectively. With this in mind, I'd like to mention two reports that I believe have great potential in providing us with essential longitudinal data. One being an FDA-mandated follow-up report on both AxiCell and T-cell CAR-T recipients, and another one being a registry commissioned by the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, which systematically collects outcome data for CAR-T recipients in a manner that is similar to how they have been collecting data for over 600,000 stem cell transplant recipients. Large reports such as these will hopefully provide us with much more comprehensive information in the future. But in the meantime, I would encourage anyone practicing to take these late toxicities in mind when you next provide care to a patient that has CAR-T as part of their medical history. Since given the many clinical trials that are currently in the pipeline regarding to other CAR-T agents, it is very likely that you will encounter them more frequently as time passes on. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.